Hi, and welcome to EC Honestly with Kayla and Lisa. Here we discuss the ups and downs of working in the field of early childhood education. So listen, hopefully learn, and enjoy. Before we begin, I would just like to acknowledge with gratitude that I am speaking to you from the unceded and traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples here in Port Moody, which includes the Kwikwitlam, tsleil Squamish, and Stolo peoples. So today I'm honored to be speaking to Monica Madison, who is better known as Mrs. Monica Madison to the children and to the families that she works with. So welcome. Thanks for having me. We have not worked together in what, like five years? I think so. I think it's been four and a half, five years for sure. Yeah. But um, so you and I met in a three to five child a center that did three to five as well as before and after school care. Um, and you were the BI for a child who was in our program um, who was on the autism spectrum. That's right. And so knowing, I mean, I know about your background, but why don't you kind of tell our audience um, about your background? And right now you work in uh, ABA, which is applied behavior analysis. That's right. Yeah. So then and now my background was ABA, applied behavior analysis, just like you said, my roles kind of changed over the years. Um, I started years and years ago when I first was studying psychology. Um, I mean, I don't want to age myself. Maybe <laughs> how long ago was that? 10 years, <laughs> 10, 11 years. Um, when I was first studying psychology, I started as a BI um, and that's just a behavior interventionist, um, mainly because I was looking for a intimate role in a child's life mm -hmm. to provide support. And I wanted that role to be in the field of psychology, somewhere that I could practice and gain new skills. Um, and I kind of stumbled across the work of a BI and thought that might be something fun to try out for a bit. Never did I think that I would stick with ABA for you know 11 years now um, and come this far in it and continue pursuing it through education and experience. But um, here I am. So yeah, I started as a BI many years ago and that was just provo providing one-to-one -one support um, for children on the autism spectrum. Those kiddos ranged in their needs and um, their abilities. Some were verbal, some were not verbal. Some had a lot of self-injury behaviors and um, dangerous behaviors and some really just needed academic support. Um, but yeah, I started with my first psych degree and kind of continued through um, my second psych degree and my postgraduate in statistics and analysis. That's amazing. And how wonderful is it that you wanted to make like an impact in a child's life, especially children, I think, who really don't have a lot of advocates who don't have a voice, um, you know, to be able to be that person who's a, you know, who at the, again, advocates for them, I think is so, so special and so wonderful. So thank you for doing that. Cause I think that's, that's really needed in this world. <laughs> yeah, I think it is needed. And I think parents do a really good job of advocating for their kids. Um, <laughs> but finding a really solid team to continue that advocacy in a classroom setting or in social situations, um, is really needed and I'm seeing it come a long ways even just over the years um, in my own experience. But um, if there's anyone listening that 
thinks, oh, you know what, working with kids with unique needs might be for me, I would definitely encourage them to look into BI work. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not for everyone. Um, For sure, I think that there's a lot of burnout that isn't talked about in the field, but the people that stick around and really have a heart for service um, for that field, I think really do impactful and meaningful things um, Mm -hmm. for those kiddos. I love it. And I like how you said who have a heart for the service, because many a times, I mean, even in ECE, you'll still, you will see people who will just kind of go into the sector thinking, you know, it's going to be easy, or it's it just seeing it as an income, not understanding that, you know, you really need to put your heart behind everything it is that you are doing, because that is a human life that you are that you are with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, yeah, parents often ask me, or, um, or come to me with questions about how do I find the right BI for my team or what should I look for in a BI or how do I know if I have a good BI? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's definitely criteria that BIs can meet. They should be ideally studying psychology, child development, something in that field. Um, I've seen great BIs that have an ECE background that maybe have their um, you know special needs certificate. Um, so someone with experience with psychology, education, child development, that's a great thing to check off in your checklist. But beyond that, they need to have a heart for children and Mm -hmm. a selfless heart for service. You can teach someone about child development. You can teach them how to implement programs You can teach them how to record data. All of those skills can be taught to the right person, but you can't teach someone to care about children and you can't teach someone to have a good relationship with your child. Mm -hmm. So, be, there's been BIs that look great on paper because they're super qualified and then they get in the room with the child and it just doesn't work out. Right. And then the BIs that come in with almost no experience and you teach them everything they need to know and they have a great connection with the child. And those are the BIs that stick around three, four, five years becoming almost like a second family member to these families. So um, yeah, I think the heart really has to be in it. And um, that's just something you can't teach. Yeah, I love how you said that. Um, And so one of the questions that I think uh, I kind of want to start off with just because I think there is a lot of confusion. And I know for myself, like, I'm not quite sure what the difference is, or if there is a difference is what is the difference between BI and ABA? Because there are lots of like acronyms that get thrown out without really understanding what they mean or what they are. Right. Yeah. So like you said, there's a lot of terms that kind of get thrown around. And if you're in the field, it's like a second language to you and you just absorb them and almost translate them in your head and continue on with the conversation. If you're a new parent on this journey, they can be really overwhelming. And if you're an educator helping support, um, you know, maybe parallel to a child on this journey, they can also be overwhelming. And I would hate for someone to um, be resistant or overwhelmed to care for a child just because the language isn't there. So um, it's a great question to clear up. So ABA is the field. So that's applied behavior analysis. That's the model of therapy. And that's um, based on behaviorism, the principles of learning. So ABA is like this big umbrella. And then underneath it, we have um, different types of implementation. And those might be things like DTT, which is um, discrete trial training. That's a mode of offering programs. Um, That's usually like a table program where we're teaching one skill and acquisition over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's also net programs, which is natural environment teaching. 
And those are programs that are more, um, you know, like social skills. And those happen in outside of the table, in classroom environments, um, in um, different aspects of the home, in different aspects outside, you know, playground, the grocery store, um, wherever. Natural environments. It's not a contrived or fake environment. And then so that we have terms like that that encompass the different ways that we can teach under this umbrella of ABA. And then we have the people that implement those programs. And one of those, like you mentioned, is a BI. So that's a behavior interventionist. And they are the people that are on your team um, providing this therapy and these programs to your kid. So mm-hmm. the BI is the person and the ABA is the method of learning. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, and so with um, uh, ABA and with working with BI, with a BI, um, is a B, does a behavior interventionist um, work exclusively with children who are on the autism spectrum or are they also able to work with children um, with other unique needs? Yeah, great question. So um, ABA is kind of tried and true. It's the gold standard of therapy for children on the autism spectrum, Mm -hmm. but it also is effective for children with, um, say, ADHD. So um, when you think ABA, people in the field always um, kind of think right away autism, but that doesn't mean that it's limited to children for that capacity. So um, I actually have two kiddos on my caseload right now who have ADHD prevents very differently for both of them. Um, But we use the same theories or principles of ABA to um, kind of structure their environment to best support them. Okay. Um, And I'm just curious as well, what, what is the history of ABA and where was this sort of uh, developed? ABA has a long history and people are cautious about it because Mm -hmm. in the past, like many pasts, um, it's not always positive. Right. So ABA. It wasn't positive, you know, long time ago. Yeah. So even the way that we viewed children with maybe varying or diverse needs has come a long way in the last 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And just like that, the way that we Um, educate and care for and treat those children has come a long way as well. So um, I would encourage people that are maybe resistant to ABA because of what um, was practiced in the past to really look at how um, proper ABA and best practice is practiced now. Um, Sometimes people have this misunderstanding that ABA is there to change children and it's there to teach the autism away. Um, mm-hmm. And that couldn't be further from the, tr- from the truth. Um, ABA is there to um, teach new skills for sure, um, but it's also a good way to highlight the areas the child is struggling and then reduce environmentally the triggers that are causing those struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not about changing the child specifically to fit in a certain world, but it's about changing that world to better accommodate the child. Mm. Um, and a lot of ABA practices work with things like teaching to diversity, right? Like accommodations and modifications for children in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we think about behaviors that children might exhibit, um, and think about teaching ABA or using ABA to reduce those behaviors, the only time that that should be done 
is if we're meeting three criteria. The first is that the behavior is causing harm or injury to the child. Mm-hmm. Then that's a behavior that we want to target right away. The second is if the behavior is causing harm or injury to another child, then that's a behavior we want to target right away. And the third is if the behavior is so distracting that it's preventing further engagement or learning for the child. So when we think about maybe the past of ABA, um, practitioners might have targeted multi behaviors because they wanted that child to um, be quote unquote um, or present as if they're less on the autism spectrum. Right. That's not, that's not best practice or how ABA is used today. The only time I would ever target a behavior. Um, so let's, for example, say hand flopping, mm-hmm. that's a stimming behavior that children on the spectrum will often do and engage in. The only time I would, um, target reducing hand flapping is if it's happening so much that that child can't engage with other material. Um, and I have yet to see that be the case. Mm-hmm. So if hand flapping makes that child feel better, that's how they're maybe dealing with anxiety. That's maybe how they're expressing that they're excited about something. We just leave it. Um, it's really about shifting our perspective of children um, and not and how we appreciate them and their differences versus changing them. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love that. And I think that is very ever changing right now in a lot of aspects of society is how, you know, how this world or the system that quote has been created has actually been very, has been a big disadvantage to a lot of people. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, slowly changing um, our societal lens to, to say that, um, you know, it's our job to be, you know, as inclusive as possible to all types of people and not view them as different or lesser than, especially, especially a child. That's right. That's right. And I know that there's, um, there's adults with autism that maybe they're even listening that really don't approve of ABA, or maybe they have negative experiences with ABA themselves. And that's fair. And those thoughts and concerns are valid. Um, and, you know, and my heart hurts for them that they experience something that maybe, um, isn't what I'm practicing now. Um, that's, that's a shame. And I don't want to discredit those thoughts and feelings, um, and concerns because they're valid too. But, um, the practice used today is not the same. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Thank you for, for saying that. Um, and so many times you were saying, um, a, a BI and ABA is used in, let's say like a classroom environment, um, right. Or a childcare, uh, environment. So, if you are working in a childcare um, or school, then what really is your role amongst all the educators? Um, you know, is there, you know, are we able to say this is um, child A's uh, special teacher, or do you try to work as a whole with that team so as not to, I guess, single out that child? Right. So <laughs> I wish that there was a blanket statement. Yeah. Um, it really depends on the, um, the center that you're at and the team. Right. So I have worked as part of teams where it's just me and I'm kind of on my own and they're there and we're very parallel, but there's not a lot of engagement. Right. And then we've worked on teams like the team you and I worked on together, which floored me in the, um, in the way that the team supported me and the way that I was able to support that child as a result. Mm-hmm. So, um, in my opinion, the best practice is always going to be that the team is the team 
We're there for all the children. And yes, I have a particular skill set that has been hired to work with one child, but that doesn't mean that other educators shouldn't engage with that child. And mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that I shouldn't engage with other children. Right. I think that when we create this kind of us versus them um, environment where it's me and one child and then the other educators with everyone else, that does the child a major disservice. Mm -hmm. That really puts up a wall between them and their peers. And that really um, kind of closes them off from better peer interactions, building relationships, generalization, which is a really important um, skill for children with autism. Um, so when, whenever educators can work together as part of a team, the better. So that would look like um, educators asking me, what can I do to support child A? Mm -hmm. Child A looks upset and I saw you did this. Can you tell me why? Asking questions, getting educated yourself, and then stepping in when the one-to-one -one support asks you to. Um, that benefits everybody. It shows the other children that everybody's here for everybody. Mm -hmm. And it shows the child that is requiring extra support that all adults are there to support them. It helps them with that skill of generalization. Um, and you asked about telling other, what do we tell other children? Yes. Mm -hmm. Again, that falls back to the, maybe the philosophy of the center. Right. Um, and that also falls to the, um, the request or the um, preference of the family that mm -hmm. we're supporting. Because at the end of the day, a meeting diagnostic criteria is a medical, uh, is a piece of medical information. Right. So it wouldn't be my opinion or it wouldn't be based off of what I want to go share that information with a classroom of students or not if the parents feel that they want that kept confidential or not. Right. Um, I've seen the benefits of parents that are open and honor this diagnosis and um, being able to answer questions of other children. You know, why does child A lay on the floor like that? Or mm -hmm. why does child A need help, so much help? Or why can't child A do this yet? Um, I've seen the benefit of answering those questions for children and talking to children about autism and what that means. Um, but at the end of the day, it wouldn't be my call on if that's allowed or not. That would be something that would have to come from the parents. Right. And it goes back to this um, relationship, how strong of a relationship, I guess, is that, that you have with those families. Um, and then also understanding, I guess, those professional boundaries that while, you know, you think this way, you, we still have to honor what that family wants for their child. That's right. And I think that, um, like you said, the relationship can play a big role in it. Um, I mean, the child that you and I worked on a team together for, mm -hmm. I'm still part of their life. Um, I'm still on his team. He's almost, he's nine now in a month. <laughs> I can't believe he's yeah. nine. <laughs> yeah. And um, he's come a long way and his family is great and wonderful. And we've always had a great relationship, but they also were always very open about it. So when we worked in that center together and children said, you know, Monica, why doesn't child A do this? I was able to say, oh, he has autism and that makes it a hard thing for him to learn, but he's learning and I'm going to help him do it. Can you help him by doing X, Y, Z and engaging children with honoring those questions, yes. not shaming them for, for asking those questions and not making it this um, kind of hush hush thing, you know, and I feel like to be honest, parents do that way more than children. 
100 right right yes they're just genuinely curious and they want to know what's going on and then you tell them and they're like okay that's great yeah with their day um parents are the ones that are they want to keep things quiet and they think that that's being respectful but it's really doing the child a disservice it's interesting that you say that because i remember once when i was a child my mom i think i was like three or four years old um my mom and i were were in uh, north vancouver in the key And I saw another child who was about my age um, in a wheelchair. And I had never, you know, I had seen like adults and more specifically like senior citizens in a wheelchair, which I think as a child, you know, is deemed as normal because you're kind of told, okay, well, you know, they're older, you know, maybe their legs don't work as well, you know, because their legs are old. So they need help. Right. And you accept that as fine if that's what, you know, that's what it is, but it, it's different when you see somebody who is more or less your age and, you know, you're trying to piece the piece, the pieces together and be like, why don't their legs, you know, why are their legs not working? Right. And so I remember being a wheelchair involves age. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That, you know, that was the connection that I had made. Um, and then I remember like very loudly asking, you know, why is that child in a wheelchair? And like pointing and being like, why like over there. Right. And my mom was so angry with me. Like, you know, because she was like, you're being rude. Stop it. Like, stop pointing that out. And I mean, I understand as an adult now, I understand why maybe there was the the want to stop, you know, making that a big deal because maybe you didn't want to make that child feel bad or or whatever, but there was never an answer given as well. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that's that whole idea of, oh, we don't want to be rude. It really, frames ch- children's thinking to think that well this is something that's wrong that yes. I shouldn't I shouldn't acknowledge this because it's something that's wrong or not okay mm-hmm. which could be further from the truth we don't want them to um look for example see a child with autism maybe exhibiting some um you know stimming behavior and yes. say well why is that child spinning and us go shh, 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 shh. like you know don't talk about that mm-hmm. because then in a way with our language we're shaming that behavior as not being okay. We don't want to draw attention to it, Um, which isn't, which isn't the case. We just, you know, depending on the child's age that that kiddo's brain is wired differently and that makes them feel good or they feel really overwhelmed. What can we do to help them? Yeah. By, by trying to keep things hush hush. And I actually talked about this. The timing is weird of this conversation. I actually talked about this on my Instagram um, question and answer. um, I think last week. But when we keep things hush hush, we think that we're being respectful or being mindful or um, being polite. And I know that it's coming from these good intentions, but really what it's saying to that child and the other people listening is that this isn't okay and we want to ignore that it's happening, Right. Um, which is just doing that child a disservice. We want to honor who they are and, um, to, and talk about who they are and, and why they might do something different than we do and that that's okay. Yes, totally. And I like how you always, especially when we're talking about like in a classroom environment, um, how you, you know, bring that child into learning, you know, how to, how to engage with that peer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and it kind of brings me to my next question. I mean, the acknowledgement of that maybe child A will require a different approach with the other children in order for them to build a relationship. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think you've answered that in, in saying like, you know, how you can bring, almost dropped my teeth, how you can bring those children in, you know, and, and again, answer their questions openly and honestly, 
and, you know, make them part of being able, you know, to be there for their friend, you know, and that helps that other child be able to build those relationships. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that children just really need a, um, just, they just need a framework to go from. They just need an explanation why they're, they're curious and that's fine. And I found in my own experience, a lot of the time, if I just brought it back to when they were learning a new skill, Mm -hmm. how they had certain accommodations put in place. Yes. um, You know, in ECE, we do the, the coat flip, right? Yes. So there's three-year-olds there, they're doing the coat flip. And then there's five-year-olds not doing the coat flip. Yeah. And I like to bring things back to concrete examples like that. Yes. So he's still learning. So I'm going to help him to learn by doing these things or support him in this way. Mm-hmm. And just like you, when you were learning to put on your own coat, you used to do the coat flip. And that was something that we did to help support you in what you could do at that time. And now you don't need that support anymore. And so it's not that it's unfair or that you're missing out on something. You just don't need that support anymore. So we don't have it. Yeah. Um, and I think that children, when you, speak to them truthfully and in their own frame of understanding. Um, they're just so accepting of, of, of all people. Yes, totally. And I think this is wonderful too, because I think we'll probably start seeing, you know, even in my generation, um, I remember, you know, being in high school and children, you know, who did have unique needs were very marginalized, you know, Mm -hmm. even in the way that they weren't, they didn't tend to be a lot of part of the classroom and they were just kind of with their support worker and they just kind of did their own thing. And, but there was never really a relationship built, you know, with that child amongst, you know, the other 25 plus children in the room. And even in high school, um, you know, again, the, it was very much like, all those children just kind of stayed on one side of the school or in right. one room of the school, but there was never, you know, the idea of inclusivity. And I mean, I'm, I'm not that old, you know, technically mm-hmm. speaking, but the, the way in which um, education has evolved is, is, you know, light years ahead now. And, you know, even me seeing myself as an, as an adult now and the, and you know, the the generations that I grew up with and people that I speak to, you know, even in your language, it's still very, you know, you're still very, you marginalize um, a specific group of people. Whereas now we're seeing children, you know, who are not, you know, being, you know, who are not being separated, who are just kind of being brought into this world that we are, you know, we're, actively trying to make inclusive for everybody. And there's a lot more empathy Mm -hmm. um, in these, in these newer generations than even in my generation. I think a big part of that is that our understanding of what's typical has um, changed so drastically. Mm -hmm. We used to think this is what a typical child looks like and anything outside of that is not typical. And now I feel like, in the field, the shift is going more to, well, what even is typical? Yes. It's a huge spectrum. Whether you meet criteria for a diagnosis or not, everybody has um, different areas of their life that they struggle in mm-hmm. and environments that they struggle in, different skills that they struggle in. Whether you meet, like I said, criteria or not for a diagnosis, um, I know myself, like noisy environments really get to me. And I don't meet criteria for any, you know, sensory processing disorder or anything like that. Um, But if I've spent like, let's say a day at the mall, Mm -hmm. I'm done. I'm maxed out when I get home. 
And so what is typical or normal, quote unquote, anyways? And Mm -hmm. I think that that has really helped this um, kind of inclusive classroom to come along. Mm -hmm. um, Because we acknowledge that it's not the majority of typical students and then the minority of a few atypical students. It's more like everybody's on a spectrum of this kind of neurodiversity whether you meet diagnostic criteria or not. And we even see this when we think about, um, you know, those quizzes where it's like, how do you learn best? Are you an auditory learner? Are you a visual learner? Or do you have to be hands-on? That is part of teaching to diversity. Yes. And if you look at a classroom of 25 students, it's not going to be 24 students that are all visual learners. And then you've got one that needs a special support worker. You're going to have five visual, five auditory, five people that need kinesthetic hands-on learning. And then a few people that maybe meet criteria and need additional accommodations or modifications. Right. So I think that as our shift of what is typical has happened, this idea of what should a classroom look like has um, changed as well. Mm -hmm. Um, It still has a long way to go though. I find a lot of um, times, unfortunately, people view proximity as being inclusion and it's really not. Right. Proximity being, you know, the children are in the classroom all together. So we're an inclusive classroom. That's not the case. If you're not teaching to diversity, you're not being inclusive in your education. At that point, I think it would almost just be like, you know, something to advertise, like, look how inclusive we are. We have children on the spectrum in our classroom. Sure. Or instead of, um, you know, like there's pull out programs um, and those are valuable in certain ways, um, you know, to remove children for special one-to-one teaching mm-hmm. um, of maybe a particular concept or skill that can be valuable and beneficial in a certain way. But if our teaching in the classroom is teaching truly to diversity, meaning we're considering the needs of all our learners and we're making accommodations and modifications for all our learners, then the need for that pullout program is really going to go down. Right. Love that. Um, and I kind of want to come back because um, you're using the word typical uh, quite quite often. So mm-hmm. I know language has also been um, extremely evolutionary, um, not just when we're talking about, you know, children with unique needs, but all, you know, in, in general. Um, so you know, why was like, why and what has been the benefit of changing from, you know, referring to not just children, but people in general as quote normal Mm -hmm. um, versus abnormal to instead saying, um, you know, typical developing, if I'm not, I think is the, is the term that you generally use um, or neurotypical. And why is that vital to, um, you know, to this? Right. So, Language is so important and remind me after I have, I want to say something about positive language to children, Um, but how we speak to someone and how we speak about someone changes not only our own perception of that person, but also um, other people that are listening, their perception of that person. And so um, like, has it ever happened to you when you hear something about someone and then the next time you see them, you really see that thing. Like if someone's like, okay, oh, Monica's always late. And then the yes. next time I see you, I'm two minutes late. You're going to be like, oh, that Monica's always, She's always late. late. Yeah. Right. So, and that's not because that's your own thought about me. That's because right. that's what you've been hearing. And now it's really being exaggerated in my behavior. Right. So 
language, how we speak about people, children as well, and how we speak to people and children changes our perception of them and it changes other people's perception of them. So when we use words like abnormal, which has a negative connotation or normal, which has a tip, uh, uh, positive connotation, we are saying that this child is different and that's bad. And this child is the same and that's good. Right. Which couldn't be further from the truth. We know that, like I just said, all of our kind of these neuro processes exist on some kind of spectrum, whether mm-hmm. you meet criteria for a diagnosis or not. And so when we can change our language to be um, this not polarizing, um, you know, not positive, not negative, it's just a, um, it's just a word saying something like um, neurodiverse Mm-hmm. would be much more accepting um, than saying that you're not normal. Right. That's not, that, that doesn't, not only is it not positive and kind, but it also doesn't really tell us anything. Right. What is it to be normal? So, um, so yeah, there's a shift in language and um, it's really important to not only use it when we're speaking to someone, but when we're speaking about them Um, and I want to just make an aside about, you know, children that are nonverbal in the field, I feel like sometimes that people that are new feel that people that are nonverbal can't understand what you're saying or that they don't have something to say. And that's not true. And so I feel like just as you wouldn't speak about a child at a, you know, a pickup, in a negative way, because that child's listening, we wouldn't want to speak about a child that's nonverbal um, because that child's still listening and yeah. they're still understanding. And um, yeah, just, I want everyone to speak more positively about people. I don't want us to be sucked into kind of these labels mm-hmm. of, you know, normal or abnormal or typical or not typical um, because that still is polarizing and us versus them. Right. This is where everybody else is and they're all typical. And this is where you are and you're atypical. Um, So, yeah, I really don't like that. I also don't, I'm not a fan of the high functioning, low functioning language. Um, Because again, it has a positive and a negative connotation and it doesn't give us any information Mm -hmm. to say someone is high functioning. Doesn't tell me anything about who that child is. Mm -hmm. And to say someone is low functioning, doesn't tell me anything about that child or who they are. Um, So yeah, there's that. Um, and then another form of language. So I wanted to come back around and say positive language. Yes. Um, this is where we are stating what we want to see from children versus what we don't want to see. And I know you as an ECE, you do a really good job of this. You know, show me your walking feet instead yes. of don't run. Um, it's the same kind of framework when we're thinking about how we're speaking about these labels that children have. Um saying the things that we want to see from them versus the things that we don't want to see. So I would never want to refer to a child as being low functioning because right. I'm highlighting, you know, their biggest struggles, which yeah. isn't there. Okay. I love that. Um, and again, language is ever evolving and, you know, my understanding of language was again, still this idea of, you know, this and that, you know, this and that, this and that. Um, so just to kind of, I guess, even just remind, you know, yourself, um, you know, to refrain from, or just actively remind yourself to try not to, 
you know, continue going sort of in that direction, I think is, um, is critical because I mean, everything can be viewed on kind of a spectrum, right? Not everything's black and white. It's not high functioning or low functioning. It's all shades of gray. You know, Mm -hmm. you might succeed really easily in some areas of your life and you might really struggle in others. And neither one of those highs or lows says who you are as a person. You can't say that you're high functioning or low functioning because of your, you know, your easiest successes or your hardest struggles. Right. I love that. I really like that. Um, and so before we sort of sign off on this episode, I want to ask you, what's the biggest takeaway that you would like our listeners, um, from this episode? Oh my gosh. My biggest takeaway is that all children have value, whether you have been, um, privileged enough to see it or not. So someone with an outsider perspective, that's maybe, Um, you know, watching a mom at the grocery store struggle with her little one, or maybe you're an educator on a team and there's a one-to-one support happening there. That child has value and they have so much to learn from you and so much to teach you. And so um, I really encourage your listeners to, you know, maybe do professional development for, um, you know, autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, any, any kind of diagnoses that we're seeing in our classrooms right now. Um, and to connect with the support worker. So if you are an educator and you're in your classroom, there's a one-to-one support there, check in with them. How can I support you? How can I learn more about this child? Can you tell me why you're creating that accommodation? Can you tell me how they benefit from this? And um, I mean, autism isn't going anywhere. And so the more informed that educators can be and the more accepting that educators can be, we can really shape this whole environment um, to best support these kiddos. And then we can really watch them bloom. I love that. And that kind of takes me back to your, um, your Instagram, which is bloom behavior. Um, that's right. so do, you want, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Um, Cause I know that's a fairly new project for you and I'm super excited for you. Cause I think this is amazing. And I've always admired not only your professionalism, but your knowledge. And you're one of the people that I know that has like one of the kindest, most genuine hearts uh, of anybody that I know. So I'm super excited for you. So please tell us all about Bloom Behavior. It's so sweet of you. Um, Yeah. So Bloom Behavior, just a project I started, I really wanted to um, kind of bridge the gap between ABA and parents. So my biggest uh, kind of feedback I get from parents on my teams is that sessions are great, but the other 22 hours of the day <laughs> are a struggle. Right. Um, or, you know what, sessions are great and we want to do more of them, but the funding just isn't there. Yeah. Right. And that's, um, that's kind of across the board in BC. I can't speak for other provinces, but um, the BC funding, you know, it's, it's okay until age six and then it really drops down. So right. I wanted to find a way to empower parents to act almost like their child's BI in those net, those natural environment teaching um, kind of models throughout the day, um, Mm. which would lead to happier kids, calmer parents, um, and kind of this generalization of um, across environments, across the therapy session to, you know, your dinner time or your commute to school and um, really teach them kind of the behind the scenes of what it means to be a BI, why we, practice the way we practice, why that benefits their child and how they can do it too. 
I love that. Awesome. And so we can always, are you planning to do workshops? Yes. Okay. You and Lisa awesome. keep calling me out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't mean to call you out, but I know you were kind of saying this is one of your plans. <laughs> no, I love it. Um, yes, I am planning to do workshops. Um, okay. I'm, I'm going to do workshops for kind of different audiences. So there's okay. going to be um, obviously different topics, things like uh, behavior, accommodations in the classroom, um, you know, modifications, nonverbal communication, lots of different topics, but I want to kind of section the workshops off so that they are most beneficial to the audience attending them. So one for ECE in a daycare setting, how can you best support that child that maybe is waiting for a diagnosis? I know there's a lot of kiddos right now that, um, or I'm hearing from educators a lot that they have children in their care that are awaiting a diagnosis, but don't yet have one, which means they don't have one-to-one support. Yeah. So the educating team um, kind of left to figure it out. Yes. And that can be a really overwhelming place to be. So um, I want to create a workshop for educators for daycare, classroom EAs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I teach a classroom of EAs now, and I really love kind of putting this theory into practice for them and what that can look like for their classroom and then parents at home. Okay. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much um, for speaking to us, especially to this extremely important subject. Um, I think that, um, again, this is something that is critical, not just, I think, for ECEs um, or anybody in the field of education, but really for um, you know, anybody in this, in this world, right? I mean, it's, right. it's our job as, as humans to be, you know, to be kind and to be caring and to be loving and to be, you know, and to be inclusive to our fellow human being. Right. Yeah, for sure. Love it. Um, well, I just wanted to say thank you again to the audience for listening to this week's episode of EC Honestly. Um, if you'd like to know more about what Monica does um, or just follow her on Instagram, again, you can follow her on at Mrs. Monica Madison. Um, and if you do have any questions or comments, please feel free to send us an email at echonestly at gmail.com or you can always DM us on Instagram, which is at EC Honestly. Thanks, everyone.